Welcome to the 29th edition of the Travelling Tube Radio Show, a podcast all about bike touring and bike culture. I'm your host, Friedel. with her husband and two boys. Together, they're a family on bikes. I'll also bring you some news from the bike touring world, and we'll continue what we started last time by looking at some of your concerns about being on tour. couple of weeks for me. I've started a new job and it's great, but after three years on the road, let me tell you that being in the office from nine to five takes more than a little getting used to. I think I'm just spoiled from having so much free time. And although I'm really enjoying what I'm doing, I can't help but look out the window and wish I were out there riding my bike. It doesn't take long of being off the road to want to get back on it again. My mind is already turning to summer tours that we might be able to do through Europe. And I'm reading an awful lot of bike blogs lately, just looking for inspiration. Now, on the last couple of shows, I've read some news stories involving cycling. But this week, I can't find anything in the headlines that really interests me, so instead, I'm going to highlight a couple blogs for you that have caught my attention. The first one is Biking Biz. It's a site with all kinds of news relevant to bike tourists, plus some other general cycling-related tidbits. On the homepage at the moment, I particularly like the feature on hostels and hotels that cater to cyclists, with plenty of resources for tracking down your own bike-friendly accommodation. You'll find that site at bikingbiz, that's B-I-K-I-N-G-B-I-S dot com. The other site that's got me excited is called The Path Less Pedaled. It's the story of Laura and Russ, who dropped out of their traditional lives in March of this year to go on a big bike adventure. Laura makes jewellery to help fund their trip, and you can buy it on the site, or just enjoy their great blogging and photos. They're really beautiful, beautiful photos. This week, they're talking about their equipment list, which is a topic I think every bike tourist must spend days, if not weeks, thinking about at least once in their bike touring life. Go and check it out. The address is pathlesspedaled.com, and I'll put links to both of those stories in the show notes. Now it's time for our feature interview, and if you have kids, I think you'll find this one particularly inspiring. It's the story of a trip from the top of Alaska all the way down the Pan American Highway to Ushuaia, Argentina. On the journey is Mom Nancy, Dad John, and their 11-year-old sons, Davey and Daryl. They're known as the family on bikes, and their trip is made all the more interesting by the fact that Davey and Daryl are going for a Guinness World Record as the youngest people to complete this classic and difficult journey by bicycle. I had the honor of talking to Nancy by Skype when the whole family was waiting for Davey to recover from surgery to his toes to fix an ingrown toenail. Just a little warning, the sound on this interview isn't the greatest. Nancy was in a noisy Colombian internet cafe and Skype cut out a couple times on us. Let's just call it atmosphere. And with that said, here's Nancy giving an introduction to the journey. We are a family of four, uh, mom, dad, and two 11-year-old twins, twin boys. 
and we are cycling from Alaska to Argentina, the entire length of the Pan American Highway. Our boys are trying to break the world record as being the youngest people to cycle the Pan American. And when did you actually start out on the trip? We left on June 10th, 2008. Gosh, that was a long time ago. It's, uh, it's quite a big journey. How many kilometers are we looking at here on bicycles? We're actually thinking now it'll probably be around 17 or 18,000. Initially, we thought it would be about 20,000, but uh, we've actually cut quite a few off by choosing different routes than we had originally planned. Um, we expect to take about another 15 months or so. We have to arrive down in Ushuaia, Argentina around January or February. We're obviously not going to make it this coming January or February, so it will have to be the following year. Give us an idea of why you took this on. I don't think anyone takes on a big trip like this without having a, a really good reason or a passion behind it. So tell us a little bit about how you came to the decision to do this big adventure. You know, that's such a hard one to answer because I think for a trip of this magnitude, I don't think there's ever going to be one reason. I think there's always going to be a lot of different factors going into it. But our our decision basically happened way back in 2006 when um, we had always dreamed of taking off for a year and traveling with our kids. John and I did that before we got married and, and uh, we had always dreamed of doing that. So it was kind of a spur of the moment thing. In 2006, we decided to just take off for a year, quit our jobs. Um, we're both teachers and quit our jobs, take off for a year. And we did that. We rode around the U.S. and Mexico, 2006, 2007 school year. And it was fabulous. It was just such a wonderful experience. And we just felt like we were so connected with our boys and so so tight as a family when we got back home you know it was real it was a real letdown to be back home because everybody's going their own separate ways and and we just felt like we weren't we weren't connected as a family like we were as we were traveling and so we made the decision to go ahead and do this trip we had met some people on our other trip who were doing this this route the pan american and made the decision that that was what we wanted to do. Um, the boys at that point decided they wanted to try to get the world record and so now here we are in Ecuador. Was that actually the boys idea to go for the world record or did you sort of bring it up and then see how they felt about it or how did that all come about? Yeah we had decided to go ahead and do the trip and then we were sitting around one night and we said gosh you know Davey and Daryl will probably be the youngest people ever to to do this trip hey, you know what, maybe we should maybe we should contact Guinness. And uh, so we asked the boys if they'd want to, and both of them, just a huge grin spread across their face. Yeah. And uh, so I contacted Guinness to ask them what the, what the regulations were. We had actually planned on starting in Fairbanks. And for the record, you had to start up in Prudhoe Bay. So we went ahead and did that because at that point, the kids wanted to break the record. And it just struck me as you were telling a little bit about your history and your previous travels that you really haven't had a lot of time at home since you originally set out to go around the States. I mean, do you, how have you dealt with that being away from home so much and what sort of adjustments have you had to make to your life? Well, you know, it's home is a relative term. Um, Jean and I had taught overseas for many years and our kids were born while we were teaching in Ethiopia. They spent four and a half years in Ethiopia, then we moved to Taiwan, then we moved to Malaysia. So they were seven when we moved back to the U.S. And then we were there for a year and a half before we took off on our last trip, went back for another year, and then took off for this trip. So home, I, you know, I'm not sure what home is. Uh, yes, we have a house in Idaho, and and that's kind of our home base, and that's where we consider ourselves from. But that being said, we haven't lived there that much. So 
that's not that big of a deal for us. I mean, we've kind of always been on the move. From your experience of doing so much with your kids, what, what are the most important things for other families who might want to do that? I mean, do you have to give the kids a sense of stability in some way? They're always moving around, but do you try and create that sense of stability and being home for them even though you're on the road? Or what are some of the other considerations that people might need to think about if they wanted to do a big trip? You know, I think, I think the thing to remember is that kids are much more capable than we give them credit for. And I know that one of the main concerns that people have said is, oh, these kids, they need a stable environment. They need us, you know, they need to come home to the same bed every night and stuff. And I finally, after about six months on the road in this trip, I started thinking, you know what? Our lives now on the road are much more stable than they ever were back in Idaho. Our lives right now, we are, you know, we know what to expect. Okay, now we don't know exactly where we're going to be laying our head at night. We don't know exactly where we're going to be or what's going to happen during the day. But within that instability, there is a lot of actual stability. There's a lot of routine. There's a lot of expectedness. And I think that is a surprise. It was a surprise for me when I finally realized that, that, you know, really we have our lives right now on the road are much more predictable than our lives ever were in Boise with all of the stuff coming and going and everybody going their own directions. It seemed like there was a lot more chaos. And yet now we're all right here together. And one thing, I mean, like, where are you going to sleep at night? And that at the beginning of our travels was a real hard one for me. I used to get real stressed out, like, where are we going to sleep? Where are we going to sleep? And after a few months on the road and you get to the where, you realize that you will always find a place to sleep. It may not be ideal, but we have always, we've been on the road for two and a half years now, biking with our kids, and every single night we have found a safe place to sleep. And I think that once you realize that, once you realize that, you will always be able to find a place to sleep always, um, then that worry isn't even there anymore. And, and then you can focus on the other things. And for us, we've just found we have a lot more stability now than we did living in our own lives, our own separate lives. One of the very practical questions, and I'm sure a lot of people ask you this, how in the world are you funding so much travel? How do you pay for it all? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, we, we actually, we really lucked out in that we, we did live overseas for years and our school, part of our contract was that they provided housing for us. And so we saved all of that money. When we moved back to the U.S., we were able to pay cash for a house. So our house now is paid for and we're renting out the house. We, if we decide to go home, we're going to have to be renting. We don't have a house to go back to. But um, that rent from the house is paying about half of our expenses right now. The other half we had hoped to come from interest and stuff on our on our savings, but of course with the economy the way it is and interest rates where they are, that hasn't hand out. We have made the decision to go ahead and, and, and dip into our retirement savings. Um, you know, we saved for years for retirement and uh, we decided that we wanted our time with our kids now rather than waiting until we're old and gray and then say, oh yeah, why didn't we do that? So we'll probably have to work beyond the normal retirement age, but we will have these memories with our kids that nobody can ever take away. What are the things about a, a trip like this when you're doing it, not necessarily just with a family, but uh, anytime you're cycling in a group, is that quite often carrying forward depends on everyone in the group being willing to carry on. And of course, some people might feel, you know, better or, or worse about that, depending on, you know, what's going on with them personally. Have you ever found within your family, has anyone ever said, that's it, I don't want to do it anymore? Or has it 
always been that everyone's focused on the goal? Um, the reality is at this point is that our boys are driving us on. For John and I at this point, we could we could stop this trip in a heartbeat and be perfectly satisfied that we've done amazing things. Our boys, however, at this point are so focused on, on reaching um, the end of the world that I could never, ever, ever dream to take that away from them right now. Um, even when they're hurting, I mean, if they're, I mean, they, they all, they, they know, they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if they're sick, we take a day off. If I'm sick, if John's sick, if Davey's sick, or if Daryl's sick, it doesn't matter who is sick, we will always take time off. We realize that that's something that is just, it's, it's a given. But they, they also know that, you know, when they get over that sickness, that they want to push on and they're so determined and they are so focused on completing this journey that there's no way that we could ever take that away right now. We'll turn to a bit of the cycling now. Give us some of the cycling highlights. You started out in Alaska. Work us, work us from Alaska down. How, how has it been? What have been some of the best parts along the way and maybe some of the most difficult parts as well? Wow. Um, we started up on the, the shores of the Arctic Ocean up in northern Alaska. Absolutely incredible. I have to say that that first part up through the Arctic tundra was probably some of my favorite part of the whole trip. Um, amazing. Just no trees at all. 24 hours of sunlight. So different. So completely different from anything I'd known before. Um, and I, I loved that area. That was great. So we worked our way down, got to Fairbanks, continued on to the Alaska Highway going through um, the rest of, of Alaska and then into Canada. Northern British Columbia was incredible, just the amount of wildlife up there, bison on the side of the road, bighorn sheep, bears, caribou, moose. I mean, it was just incredible the amount of wildlife we saw. Absolutely amazing area. Continued on down, um, entered into the U.S., in the U.S. had a lot of just mechanical problems, and we were actually really, really thankful that they happened in the U.S. because we could get the parts and it was relatively easy for us to handle it. So we basically spent our whole time through the U.S. dealing with rims and brakes, and then John got in an accident in, in Albuquerque, and so just dealt with all of that. But again, I mean, the U.S., it's, it's, you know, it's our home country. It's a wonderful place, and we love the U.S., and we were real thankful that those things happened there. And then down into Mexico. Mexico was amazing. Just we we ended up with a contact from a, the motorcycle at motorcycle clubs in the country, and they offered to escort us through all the cities. So all the way through Mexico, we had these motorcycle escorts through all the cities. A great people there. Central America, great. I and mean, then of course getting back to Honduras, where I used to be a Peace Corps volunteer, and meeting up with my Peace Corps family after 22 years. Uh, I mean, just amazing experiences. It's just been absolutely incredible all the way down. And it's really hard to say, you know, this part was better than that part or whatever. Um, I could say the only part I really kind of didn't like was Costa Rica. Costa Rica was just way too, um, too touristy. It was just tourists everywhere. But other than that, the whole trip has been amazing. How have you managed things like traffic and, and especially because you have your kids? I know a lot of people when they go out cycling, you know, it's one thing to, to ride on the road themselves, but if they have kids, they want to be extra careful and so on. How have you dealt with that? I imagine some of the traffic down in uh, down in Central America would have been kind of hairy, especially. Actually, no. The traffic in Central America was fine. We didn't have any problems at all. Well, I take that back. I take that back. Costa Rica, we did have a problem with, with one part. Costa Rica was the worst by far. Um, the drivers there were nuts. And, and what we ended up doing there was we did fight the traffic for about 50 miles or so and, and finally decided this is nuts I mean, we're going to get killed and so we ended up going back on a, on a back road 
and it was great. Um, we had to rejoin the main road again right before we got into Panama. So, so we fought it for a little bit at the northern part of the country and then again in the southern part, and that's it. But basically what's happened, Daryl, of course, is on the back of the tandem. And so he doesn't, he just, I mean, John has to maneuver the traffic. And John has many, 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 many thousands of miles behind him, and he and he knows how to deal with that. Davey didn't when we first started. He really didn't. And then this wasn't necessarily a planned thing on our part, but in retrospect, it ended up being perfect. We started up on the Arctic Ocean. And so for 500 miles, we really didn't deal with any traffic at all. Uh, we were on the Dalton Highway. There were some trucks coming by, but basically didn't deal with traffic. So he had 500 miles then to really get comfortable on his bike, know his bike, know exactly how to ride without having to focus on traffic. And then we ended up skirting Fairbanks, so we really didn't get much traffic there. And then, of course, you're on the Alaska Highway for 1,400 miles. So the first time we entered into traffic, he had already ridden that bike 2,000 miles. And he knew, he knew how to, to, to deal with the bike. We had gone through a lot of smaller towns at that point, and he had ridden through the small towns and was doing fine with it. So he broke into traffic really gradually. And at first what we did was we always made sure that one of us would go first so that he could see what we're doing and he could follow us. And then the other one would be behind him so that if he did mess up, the other one was there to shout at him and say, no, Davey, get back over here. So we had him sandwiched between us as we were going through any cities. Now the kid is great. I mean, he's not even 12 years old. And I mean, he can go into downtown Medellin, Colombia and not blink an eye. And, and, and he does that fine now. Wow, that'll be a skill for him to take back to wherever he ends up settling when he's an adult. Oh, absolutely. So now you're in you're in Colombia at the moment. We're talking from Colombia, but you've actually cycled to Ecuador, and then you'll pick up from there when? Give us the sort of timeline for going forward. The deal is we Davy and I ended up leaving our bikes here in Colombia because he needed to get this toe surgery and stuff. Um, John and Daryl are now over in Ecuador. They have their bike over there, whereas our bikes are in Colombia. So we're now... Starting tomorrow, we'll be riding our bikes back over to to Ecuador. We're just right at the border. It's not far at all. And we'll see how Davy's toes do. Um, he had the surgery about two and a half weeks ago. And um, if his toes are okay, then we'll push on fairly soon. Um, as soon as we get back, we'll probably spend a two or three days kind of getting things organized to live from this little village. Um, and then we'll take off. And if his toes are hurting, then we'll hang out longer and wait till they get better. And how long will it take you again to get all the way down to the bottom? We're expecting about another 15 months. Another 15 months. You're actually doing this um, quite a bit slower than, say, the average uh, solo tourist who would go from Alaska down to the tip of South America. Is that something that you expected? or? It, it is. We, you, you Basically, you have to time it so that you leave Alaska in summer and you arrive down in Ushuaia in summer. So you have to do it. You can either do it in like nine months, so you leave early, early, early summer in Alaska and you get down and you push it at the end of down getting down there. Or you do a year and a half, or you do two and a half years, or three and a half. And so nine months obviously was out for us. A year and a half, we could have done it, but with a year and a half, we felt like that was pretty fast. You know, a year and a half to 17,000 miles, it's doable. But, you know, you have to keep going. You can't take a month off here and two weeks off there. And but, so then it ended up being two and a half. So, yeah, when we set out, we, we anticipated two and a half years. And when you get down to the bottom, what will you do then? Oh, good question. We figure we've got a few months to think about that one. In denial at the moment, huh? <laughs> 
We have no clue. Um, we, we can always go back home. We, we have our house in Idaho. The renters, we can kick the renters out. We can go back to our house. And so that's, that's certainly an option. We may end up doing that. If we all get down to the tip and we're all still having fun and we're enjoying it and, and we want to continue on, and if the finances are holding out, then we may end up flying over to Africa or flying to Singapore or, I mean, we, we, we don't know. We just don't know. It's, it's really up in the air right now, but we figure we've got enough time that it doesn't matter that it's up in the air. Do you think someday that you will return to the States to live? And, and if so, how will that process of reintegration be, having traveled for, for so many years? Um, I, I'm, I'm guessing, okay, if I had to guess right now, I would say that after this trip, we will probably go back to the U.S. Um, and I put that probably in there because we certainly may decide to continue on. The boys, I, I'm not sure that they're going to want to continue to travel all the way through high school. They're loving it right now, but I don't know that they're going to want to continue. When we go back, um, I don't know what it's going to be like. Davey is talking about wanting to go back to, to school. Daryl is talking about wanting to continue to be homeschooled. Um, I, I, you know, I, I really don't know. We'll cross that bridge when we get there. Okay. Any parting words or last bits of advice that you would give to maybe a family listening out there who would also like to get on the bikes? I, I, I guess, I guess the only thing I can say is, is seriously to to follow your follow your passion and then live your dreams and do that now. I, I, I like like you. I have heard so many people say, oh, you know, I'll wait until I'm, my kids are in college and then I'm going to go do this. And I know too many people who have health problems or or have have died before they've gotten to that point. And and I feel so sorry for those people that put that off and put that off, thinking that they couldn't do it with kids, and then for one reason or another they couldn't do it later. I think the best thing in the world for us right now is the idea of living this life with our kids and, and being with our kids and seeing them grow and change before our eyes and and to be working together as a family toward a common goal. And there have been many situations where, honestly and truly, I mean, we, we, we get to a tough situation, whether it's a really hard climb or, or whatever it is. and. Each and every one of us pitches in with everything we have. I mean, and we come into it with every strength that we have. We know now what our strengths are. We know what our weaknesses are. We know each other. We know how to take advantage of, of each other's strengths. We know how to cover for each other's weaknesses. And and how wonderful is that as a family to go through those experiences as a family? And we, we don't do that. We just never put ourselves in those situations on a, gen, on a typical basis. And and so this is just such an amazing experience. And I, I, I would say to any family, go for it. Go for it. And kids are capable of way, way, way more than you think they are. Don't doubt your kids. Never doubt your kids at all because they will live up to whatever, whatever challenge is placed in front of them. Thank you very, very much, Nancy. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Some encouraging words there for anyone considering going on a bike tour with kids. And if you want to read more about the Family on Bikes, check out their website, familyonbikes.com. Have a look, too, at Reach the World, a nonprofit organization that links students in underfunded schools to online global expeditions. Family on Bikes are working with this group, and they're really passionate about the learning potential that Reach the World brings to kids. You'll find more information on reachtheworld.org. As always, I'll link to both of those in the show notes. Well, regular listeners and readers will know that we've been talking about your fears over the past couple of weeks. 
It's a rare cyclist who doesn't have at least one thing that they're slightly uneasy about when it comes to hitting the road for a tour, and it's been really interesting to see what stands out as your fears. We've been doing a poll on the site since late November, and so far 155 of you have voted, and three key things stand out as factors that worry you. I'll tell you what they are in a moment, but first, I thought you might like to hear from some cyclists I managed to pull aside at the World Bike Touring Fair in Rotterdam recently. I asked them, what is something you worry about on tour? I'm always a little bit uncertain if I can make it because I haven't cycled so much as my husband and my husband has traveled all around the world on his bike even in Algeria and other well difficult countries and I'm not so experienced <laughs> but every time that when we do it it's just good for me and well he always waits for me at the top of one mountain so it's no problem at all what I would worry about most is bureaucracy. Get, getting visums, getting them uh, in countries that you haven't been before and you're just arriving within a, few, a couple of days and then finding out the way the country works, basically. When I was cycling in Canada, the bears sometimes scared me when I saw them along the road. That scared me. And, uh, and the dogs sometimes when they chase me. I'm sometimes concerned about uh, the camping places because we're biking with kids and you want to stop at uh, 5, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock in the evening. Sometimes it happens that there is no camping at all. And even, then we have to look for more 20, 20 kilometers more biking with a little kid is not so funny. If the country is safe, and also with the bicycle, does it remain, uh, or is everything, yeah, yeah, or not damaged? When you, when you went cycling and then, uh, okay, my, uh, <laughs> my wheel is not okay. So, yeah. Is it the same for you, or? Yeah, a little bit, but also uh, uh, the people, they live in the country, are they nice? They don't want to rob you or anything like that. Well, first of all, planning a tour, I mean, just me personally, I don't do a heck of a lot of planning. I'm just more one of these fly-by-the-seat-of-my-pants kind of people, which has its advantages and disadvantages. But in terms of being worried, of course, that always leads to the eternal question at the end of the day, where am I going to sleep? <laughs> Which is probably most what would worry a bicycle tourist. I've never actually had any problems with that, uh, that being said, because uh, you start to learn that you can actually sleep everywhere. Uh, besides the usual obvious things like camping and, and wild camping, of course, uh, churches, uh, you know, you sleep in, I think, one time next to a graveyard. That was a good one. Um, I've slept in the cab of a truck. Uh, people's garages, uh, you know, <laughs> just when you need to sleep, the opportunities present themselves. Okay, I want to travel on bike uh, on my own, so as a woman, so I'm little worried about maybe some men will uh, do horrible things. Or and I really like um, camping in the wild, so I'm thinking, okay, can I do that on my own? When I go with a friend, a girlfriend of mine, then, okay, we just do it. But if I'm on my own, it's more scary. Another thing is the, the emptiness. I want to go for a half, a half year, and I'm thinking, okay, it's also an adventure. Just see what will happen and see how I will deal with myself. But it's also a little scary. Cyclists at a bike touring fair in Rotterdam, sharing their worries about hitting the road. I actually asked each of those people a string of questions, and I'll be playing the other answers on future shows. But now, back to that poll. As I said, 155 people voted in our survey by the time this podcast went to air. And of that group, by far the biggest worry was being hit by a car. 20% of you said it was a concern. 
The second biggest fear was general safety at 15%, and in third place was the age-old dilemma of finding a place to sleep at night. That worried about 12% of you. I really want to explore this topic of fears and concerns further, so I'm trying to find some experts to offer up solutions to all of these things. Get in touch if you have some good ideas to share. My email is us at travelingto.com or use the contact form on the site. Well, that's about it for this week. In our next show, we'll be off to British Columbia to talk about biking the Kettle Valley Rail Trail. It's one of Canada's most scenic routes. That show's actually due out on Christmas Day, but I might release it a little bit early. Until then, happy cycling. Thank you.